Hebrews, as we've talked about, is about how Christ is superior to all the other options. And as you get to Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7, the portion of Hebrews relates to Christ being superior to Moses. And so the author is going to use the journey of Israel to the promised land, which includes a whole bunch of wandering, of course, to serve as a warning for the church. So if you think about the contrast in the first chapter and a little bit into the second, Jesus being the superior prophet, the superior messenger, and here's a contrast between the messages and the punishment with the messages. Now we're going to talk about the people of Israel's wandering, Moses as their leader, and Jesus' superiority even to Moses. And he's not just going to show the similarities between the position of the church and Israel, which he will do, but moreover, he's going to show how the church is the continuation of the work that God was doing with Israel. And if that's true, then we as the church, therefore, are in the same position that Israel was in, and then we have to beware that the same thing that happened to Israel that uh, doesn't happen to us. So Israel was extremely delayed in their entry into the promised land. We, if we're in a similar position, similar situated, would be the similarly situated is like the legal term. Uh, we have to beware that the same thing doesn't happen to us. So the the last passage that we read was the warning at the beginning of, of Hebrews 2 last week where it said, don't turn away because Jesus is superior. And now it's going to give a similar kind of warning, which is you've got to persevere as the church. You've got to look forward. You've got to press on toward the promised land in a better way than Israel did. Because Israel ultimately fell short in their pursuit of the promised land. We'll talk about those passages in a minute. Um, but you look at like uh, 3.6 and 3.14, the passage says twice, if we hold on, if we hold firmly. So these promises of rest, these promises of entry into the ultimate promised land are contingent promises. If we hold on, we will realize and have those, uh, those promises delivered. The passage draws an analogy between our experience and Israel's experience in the wilderness. So let me just read. Let me start with uh, verse 7, and I'll just read to the end of the chapter. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? and with whom he was provoked for forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
the, the church being connected to Israel, our experience connected to theirs. The church as the new Israel is looking forward to a new rest in the new heavens and the new earth, just as Israel was looking to rest in the promised land. And Israel gets these continued warnings from God that if they do not obey, if they do not listen to the word of God, then they're not going to inherit this rest, that they're not going to get this promise. And they didn't listen to the warnings. And so we know the story from Exodus that they wandered for 40 years. And the whole purpose of the wandering was so that an entire generation could die out because they had not been obedient. They had not listened to God. And so they were not going to get the rest of Canaan. Um, and so he waits until they die out, and then he brings this new generation of Israel into the promised land. Not that they proved themselves any more faithful, but God was making a point about the connection between obedience and ultimate rest. So you've got these interesting connections between the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. They have the same background, if you think about it. Think about the context of Israel coming into the wilderness, pursuing the promised land, they have already been delivered from bondage. So they've left bondage, and now they're striving forward to enter into God's rest. The Passover lamb delivered them from bondage. Now think about the current condition of the audience of Hebrews and of us today. We have already been delivered from bondage by the true Passover lamb, by Christ. We are striving to enter into rest. So we have exactly the same background as them. The freedom has already been granted to us. Now we're on the path of finding the rest that God promises. We have the same situation. They went from slavery and then they're freed from slavery. And then what they were freed into was not birthday cakes and lollipops. <laughs> it was hardship and adversity. It was desert trials. It was danger of apostasy. It, lots of difficulties and challenges were in their immediate future. What's the situation of the church? We've been delivered from bondage to sin. We're no longer slaves, but what are we delivered into? We're not delivered into glorified bodies and minds, to the battle between the spirit and the flesh. We're freed into this difficult life pursuing the rest with God. Uh, the text says, and if you look, actually, like look at 3.12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Who could that be said to? Could that be said to us? Well, yes, of course. Could that be said to Israel, freed from slavery and now wandering in the wilderness? Yes, you'd say exactly the same thing. Look at 4.6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, who could that be said of? Could that be said of people wandering in the desert with Moses? Could that be said of people in the visible church today? Absolutely. That's some who hear the good news and then wander away. And in fact, verses like that and verses like um, 3, 13, and 14, exhort one another every day, original confidence, uh, if you hear his voice, we actually have the same message heard. 4.2 says they had the gospel preached to them. We have the gospel preached to us, the good news of God providing deliverance and ultimate rest. We hear the same message. We have the same goal in mind. You look at chapter 3 and verses 16 through 19. Why did they leave Egypt? What was the goal of this? Well, it was the rest in Canaan. That's what they were supposed to enter into. Verse 18, they would not enter into his rest. And then you look at four verses eight through 10. 
Look at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Whoever has entered into God's rest, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We have exactly the same goal in mind. They're pursuing rest in Canaan. We're pursuing rest in heaven. It's all about God's rest. So we get the exact same warning. Uh, chapter 3, verse 19. You will not enter his rest if you're disobedient. Chapter 4, verse 2. They did not benefit from the message because they were not united by faith. Faith, chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The same warning, exactly the same warning given to Israel in their wilderness wanderings is do not fall away. Do not harden your heart. Do not stop listening to God or you will not enter this rest that we're pursu- uh, that we're trying to enter. So you've got this very clear connection we are in the same situation same background we're given the same gospel the same message heard we're striving for the same goal and so we hear exactly the same warning the church in israel are identically situated where god has freed us and now we're trying to enter this rest and we will only find this rest if we remain faithful if we persevere we will not enter into this rest if we fall away and so he talks about Rest. Now, let me give a little aside for a second on rest and the role of Sabbath in rest. Because among people who care about the Sabbath at all, who even think about the Sabbath as a concept, so we're already in a pretty narrow category of Christians, there are two main views. Uh, I'll call them ongoing and fulfilled Sabbath. So ongoing Sabbath is my view. It means that God created a pattern, six days of work, one day of rest, that everything in creation since then and every commandment he's given us since then maintains that pattern. And so even with what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it doesn't upend that pattern. It's a a creation order that God made. And so though the day is changed, it used to be that you rested on the last day of the week because the most significant event in human history was God's rest on the last day of the uh, the week. The day changed because the resurrection is now the most significant event of human history. It happened on the first day of the week. So even though the day changed, we still have an obligation to obey the fourth commandment. I look at the Ten Commandments, I don't see any of the other commandments that have gone away. Jesus fulfilled them all, that's his language, but he didn't, he didn't reduce them all. He didn't replace them all. Um, and so that's the ongoing Sabbath, is this idea that we are under an obligation to keep Sabbath, though the day changed, in all of the ways, uh, any way that was not related to Things that Jesus did explicitly say we're done with. So no more food laws, no more sacrificial system, because he's the once and for all sacrifice, but the pattern of work and rest goes on. Um, and I think that that pattern will continue in the new heavens and the new earth. I, I, I think it is a fact of reality as how God made the universe. I don't see that he would or why we could suggest he would change it. But the, there's another crowd, and again, this is within... God-honoring, Jesus-loving, well-thinking, Bible-believing Christians. This is not just people who say, I don't care about the Sabbath. This is people who've really thought about this issue, who say that the Sabbath is fulfilled. And when uh, the work on the cross was finished, and Jesus rose to heaven, and as we read about in Hebrews 1, was seated next to the Father, 
Jesus' sitting down established the permanent rest into which God's people enter. So that, that point of view would be that that rest is active all the time. Whatever it is that Israel was pursuing once a week, whatever it was that, that God was providing to Israel once a week in that rest, we now have access to that grace seven days a week because Jesus is seated on the throne. And since that Sabbath rest is active all the time, we are in a permanent Sabbath rest, we don't have to keep the fourth commandment, we don't have to treat uh, the Lord's Day in a way that's distinct from the other six days. They would still say the New Testament gives us an obligation to worship, not to forsake the gathering of the saints. So it's not like church doesn't matter. It's not, it's not about that at all. It's about the concept of some of us are arguing that because we're so similarly situated to Israel, we are still pursuing the same heavenly rest as were they. And the way that God gives us glimpses and shadows and reflections and a taste of that heavenly rest is through the weekly rest that comes on the Lord's day. Um, now, the reason I explained all of that is because this passage gets used all the time in the Sabbath debate between those two positions. As those two groups argue over which view is the right one, both sides come to this passage and both sides claim that this passage supports their point of view. And the the link in chapter 4 that we'll talk about in a minute and that I read just briefly a minute ago causes both sides to look at this and say there's a connection between weekly rest and what Jesus did and God's ultimate rest. And because they're all connected, either... Yes, that's exactly why what Jesus accomplished, accomplished all of it in all those categories of rest. Or, yes, that's why they're distinct and it's three different types of rest that are pointed to, that are thought about differently and distinctly, and that's why the Sabbath is ongoing. So both sides come to this passage, both sides say this passage supports their opinion, and in my opinion, the reason why both sides are able to do that is because this passage doesn't have anything to do with that whatsoever either position. And so because this passage has nothing to do with that debate, it just happens to use the words rest and the words Sabbath, that's why both sides are able to come to this passage and apply it to their point of view. It doesn't prove or disprove either one of those points of view. It's not about that. This passage is not about Sabbath. This passage is about perseverance. It is about persevering toward heaven and that we have a responsibility to pursue with faithfulness the ultimate rest of God if we are to reach it. So then when you go back to uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, this is a quotation of Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is Psalm 95. So why is the author of Hebrews appealing to Psalm 95? Remember, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience that's considering going back to the old ways, so he's using Old Testament examples all over the book of Hebrews to call their attention to things that connect where they are right now with where Israel was before them. And he goes back to Psalm 95 to say, don't make the same mistake the people in the desert made. What you're considering, having seen the rest, been told of the rest, supposedly believed in the rest and that it's worth pursuing, and now to turn your back on that and pursue something else, that is exactly what your ancestors did in the wilderness. 
But the interesting question as you look at these two passages together is, what is Psalm 95 about? It's really easy for us to read Hebrews and to accept that Hebrews is about ultimate heavenly rest because it's in the New Testament. It's after Jesus quotes Psalm 95. So it's, we have no problem whatsoever looking at Hebrews and saying what, what Hebrews 3 and 4 are about are ultimate heavenly rest. But what Psalm 95 is about, that can't be about ultimate heavenly rest. That has to be about Canaan because it was written in you know, the, the time of Israel and after their wanderings. And this, it, it just can't be, there can't be a New Testament message in Psalm 95. But actually, that's exactly what it is. Psalm 95 is about ultimate spiritual rest. It is not primarily about Canaan. One historical reason for that, that should come across as pretty simple, is Psalm 95 was written when the Israelites were in Canaan already. So they're in Canaan already, and the psalm talks about a rest that has not yet been entered. So how how could it be that they would say, boy, we can't wait till we enter that rest in Canaan, as they are in Canaan, while they are writing and reading and singing this? The psalm, even Psalm 95 itself, is exhorting them. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So Psalm 95, not just Hebrews, is an exhortation. Don't miss out on the rest. Don't miss out on the land. How could that be about a land and a rest that they already inhabit? So that that doesn't work at all. Then if you look at Hebrews 4.1, It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So the author of Hebrews, interpreting Psalm 95, says the exact same promise of Psalm 95 is available to you. Hey, I'm so excited. Psalm 95 says one day we get to go be in Canaan. I don't think that's any of us what what we're looking for. So it'd be a very unusual for the author of Hebrews to say, hey, Christian, you should be really glad that Psalm 95 makes a promise that's still available to you. What is the promise? Well, it can't be Canaan. It has to be heavenly rest. You look at Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the author of Hebrews just goes right to that point, which is, If the rest they were longing for, if the final end of their pursuit was the rest in Canaan, then once they inhabited Canaan, God would have never spoken of rest again for them. They would have been in it. And yet God came to his people while they were in the promised land and told them not to miss out on his rest, that there was something more that Joshua had brought them. Uh, if you flip just all the way forward to Hebrews 11 for a minute, and there's a hall of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 13. It's going to talk about these who died. It said, these all died in faith. Remember, it's talking about all the faithful, not the unfaithful. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. 
They were looking for a place beyond themselves. They were longing for a heavenly country. Even the patriarchs, is what Hebrews 11 said, even the patriarchs did not think that Canaan was the end result, that Canaan was the final place of rest for God's people. The patriarchs didn't think it. Joshua didn't think it. David didn't think it. Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews tells us that is not what that was ever about. And so the same is true for us. And this is why it's such a compelling point about being similarly situated with Israel. The author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians and saying, you are in the same place. You have the same choice that your ancestors had. You are freed from bondage just like they were. You are in a time of difficulty just like they were. You've heard the gospel just like they did. And you are pursuing the exact same rest that they did. But they failed to enter it. Even the ones that entered into Canaan failed to enter God's heavenly rest if they did not hold fast by faith to the confession. And so this is a powerful message to Jews that being a part of the covenant community, the visible church, we would call it, doesn't mean you've entered the rest. I mean, we wouldn't think of that for a second. Like, you wouldn't say, because I'm a member of a church, I've entered God's heavenly rest. This is it, y'all. This is the rest. I hope you're enjoying it. Right? Not super restful, is it? There's a temptation, and talking about first century Jews in particular, as we think about the audience of Hebrews, that they had entered. Rejection of Jesus, ultimately, was because Jesus refused to be the civil, political, military Messiah that was going to give them the possession and ownership and freedom of the land. That was their end game. When we will know we've made it, when we know we've received everything God promises us, is when we control our own territory and nobody messes with us, and we can, they would say, we can worship freely, we can, but it was the, political, military, socioeconomic, individual identity that to them was the end game. And the author of Hebrews saying, that's not it. It's God's heavenly rest. It's not Canaan. It's heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth. But we have to be careful and not think that because we've entered the covenant community, we've entered the rest. We've made it. I don't think we're at such great risk of that particular part. But we do struggle to believe in the connection between that rest that we're pursuing and this rest that is available to us here in worship. I mean, part of what we're trying to do at Covenant of Grace is to draw a closer connection between this and that. You know, as I think about my view of the church and what is the church, it's certainly, um, I don't know about changed, but been molded and and I think improved, become more biblical over the years as I've listened to different people teach about the nature of the church. And uh, Dr. Mark Ross, one of the professors at Erskine Seminary in Columbia, gave a great lecture I heard one time where he talked about the job of the church is to paint a visible picture of an invisible reality. And our picture can never be perfect. We're sinners. We have lots of human logistics and foibles and and problems to deal with. But when we think about what should the church be, it should be as close as we can get it, a visible picture of an invisible reality. All right. Well, what's true about the invisible reality, the the new heavens and the new earth, the throne of God, we we can't see yet. We can't possess yet. What's true about that? 
Well, God is worshipped there in spirit and in truth. And he is loved with his with the whole heart and mind and soul and being of everyone that is around him. So what should our church worship be about? It should be about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, raising up our children, challenging one another to love God with every fiber of our being and to worship him that way. We're not too cool for worship. Men in this church are not too cool to sing hymns, even if our voices suck and we're terrible. We are not too cool to you know confess the faith using these ancient creeds. We will worship God in spirit and in truth. We don't get rid of hymns because we don't like the way they sound. We get rid of hymns because we they don't say things that are true. They don't say things that are good. Why do we protect the pulpit and it matters who preaches and what's set up here? Why would we rather have an inexperienced elder deliver a sermon than some seminary student that I could go pull in and pay to preach? Because I know what these guys will preach. And the most important thing, yes, we want truth preached with quality and conviction. But the most important thing is truth. And we don't want to be in a situation where somebody ever comes in this church, either as a visitor or a member, and they hear the word of God preached and their response is, so what? So what to the word of God? And that's what bad preaching does. You could listen to a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minute sermon. And if it's not in spirit and in truth, if it's not deeply ingrained in the word of God, if it's not a visible reflection of an invisible reality, your response to hearing a sermon is so what? And your response to worship is so what? What did that do for me? What's the big deal if I miss it? What's the problem? So this idea that we are trying to enter into a spiritual dimension of rest, a spiritual uh, union and communion with God that we can possess in this world in a, in a teeny tiny reflective way only when we enter into his rest on the Lord's day in worship. We have lots of other advantages with the Holy Spirit during the week. I'm not saying that's only once a week we get to interact with God, but there is something very unique about the way we enter into the rest of God on the Lord's day. And so we are in the same situation as those in Hebrews, except I would say to us, it's not as much about um, the likelihood that we'll turn away from the faith, though we all have to be careful with that. We always have to be on our guard that we uh, that we uh, hold fast the confession, but it's about the importance and the reality of worship, of entering the rest, of prioritizing the day for the things that are about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And my new position uh, that I've developed about the Sabbath over the last few years as I continue to struggle with this is when you decide whether or not to do something or to not do something on the Lord's day, the only question I care about anymore is, does this activity demonstrate that I love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and or that I love my neighbor as myself? And that is a great filter. It doesn't become about, is this recreation too competitive? It doesn't become, it is what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Am I loving God and loving my neighbor through this? Because that is what characterizes the rest of God that will enter. Don't enter the rest of God by working harder or by trying to enter the physical land of Palestine. So look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For, for we who have believed enter that rest. That's it. 
What are the requirements for entering the rest of God? They're exactly the same as they were for Israel wandering the wilderness, as they were for the people, the Hebrews to whom this letter was written, as they are for us today. It's not by working harder. It's not by physically entering the land of Palestine. The real rest is entered into by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what allows us to enter the true promised land. And so Israel's problem was not that they got lost in the wilderness. Israel's problem was not that they were not militarily able to defend themselves from the Romans. Israel's problem was that they did not believe the gospel that was preached to them. And it is exactly the same problem that so many in our world have today. The gospel is preached and they do not believe. And scripture is clear they will not enter the rest. And then as you keep reading there, at the end of verse 3, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. So the author connects our future heavenly rest with God's current Sabbath. The reason you get to rest in heaven is that God is already there resting where he has been since he created the world. That's not to say God's inactive, but the point is you'll be doing what God's doing. You'll be entering into that type of rest. Note the language. They will not enter my rest, God says. It's not generic rest. It's not just sleepiness or slothfulness. It is a a specific type of rest that without faith you cannot join. God's heavenly rest, his Sabbath rest, there are things that we cannot enter except by faith. And the rest that we're going to enter by faith is God's Sabbath rest and God's heavenly rest ultimately. So rest gets used in a lot of different ways in this passage. It gets used to mean Canaan when the when Israel inherits the land. It gets used as God's creation week, the way that God rested on the seventh day. It gets uh, as God's permanent heavenly rest where we will join him in above. There are lots of different ways rest is used here, but the connection for us is we're in the same situation. We face the same challenge. We have the same opportunity by the same gospel to enter into God's rest by perseverance and by faith. And that's what this passage is about, is that we would persevere. So the way it ends then is with this exhortation at the end of chapter Uh, or the middle of chapter 4, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. We look forward to entering into God's heavenly rest. We have abiding hope in our lives. We have weekly Sabbath rest. We have lots of advantage. But we have not fully entered into God's rest and we long for that. And so in order to do that, we, we hope in that rest by participating in the rest that is here. And we, 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 we long for the day when we leave our wilderness trials. We cease from that work, the type of work that has toil, the type of work that fights back. And the trials are over, the work is done, and we rest with God. I think we'll have different types of work, but it'll hardly be identifiable as work when it's not fighting back. So that's the warning for us, is be warned Yet be encouraged. The rest is not yet here, which I think is a lot easier for us to see than perhaps Israel thinking about the chance of of the nation of Israel being so powerful. We don't struggle to, I mean, maybe some people do look at the United States of America and think that if we got to have all the laws the way we wanted and we got to be America, this would be as good as reality can get. Maybe there are people who think that way. I don't think that way. I long for entering the heavenly rest and uh, the author warns us to be careful that we don't fall from it.